And so as the four of us wrote all of those letters, we were supposed to be asking ourselves, what do you think that the Spirit of God is saying to you as a person? And what do you think that the Spirit of God might be saying to your church community right now? And the experience was not designed in any way to somehow claim biblical authority and add to the scriptures, but it was simply to invite a process of listening to God, uh, which will continue for me through the summer months. And so as I listen, there was a really strong sense that began to stir in my heart about anticipation and what was ahead for us at Jericho Ridge as a community. And so as I continued to listen and discern, began to test some of these things, began to write some of that letter down, I began to shop it around a little bit with some of the team here at Jericho and some of the elders and said, would you uh, listen to this and read it and prayerfully discern? Do you think that these are things that God might be saying to us? Pass it around to some of the people who pray and intercede regularly here at Jericho. And their encouragement in that was uh, very humbling and very confirming as well. There's a growing sense in my heart that God was saying some of these things, not just to me as an individual, but to us as a community uh, of faith. And so that was really encouraging that God's saying this not just to me, but those who care deeply for his church and the things that God wants us to hear corporately and personally. And so with that affirmation, then I read the letter as a part of our provincial convention in Kelowna last month. And there were four letters that were read, and they were incredibly diverse from a wide range of uh, different congregational styles, from a wide range of leaders, uh, from a wide range of backgrounds and histories, some new churches, some established churches, younger leaders and veterans. And in all of them, though, there was a, quite an amazing sense of unity that came in that, that God was using all of those things uh, to challenge and to build up his body. And so one of the things that I go into my sabbatical convinced of more than ever is that this is not about me in any way, shape, or form. It's not about Pastor Keith. It's not about the fantastic staff team that we have here. It's not about the amazing leadership team that we have and our elders. It's what happens here in this place and what happens through the life of Jericho Ridge as a community is as a result of God uh, working out his unique plan that he has for us as a group of people in this community and seeing people come to saving faith in him, in the power of the Holy Spirit and seeing them discipled into faithful and devoted followers of Jesus. And that's our mission and it's something for which we'll be held accountable as a church family. And so when we wrote these letters as, as leaders, it was just incredibly clear that each unique congregation has a unique sense of mission that God has for it, a unique personality that God's given to each church. And so if you want to read those letters, you can find them. Uh, they're on our conference website at bcmb.org, and you look under events and then convention and the letters, uh, 2011 letters to churches. Uh, but I want to read the letter that I prepared for you here because I think it speaks to that sense of how God is uniquely gifted and called us for the mission uh, that he has for us here in this place and, and how it might call us to sharpen our focus. And so the goal of sharing this letter is to stir our thinking and to let you into what's going on and how I'm thinking in my head and in my heart uh, as I go into this sabbatical experience. And I thought about reading it tonight at our ministry meeting, but I thought, well, um, I wanted to have all of you have an opportunity to hear it and get inside of what I feel like is going on in my life and give you, hopefully, the opportunity to share it. And so as you listen, I want you to get your Momentum Journal out 
And I want you to be asking the question, what part of this letter resonates with you? What part of this letter challenges you? What part of this letter confuses you? What part of this letter might confirm some of the things uh, that you've been thinking? And so if there are things that fall into one of those categories for you, I just encourage you to write it down and take some time and think and pray and process it. And when you come to our ministry meeting tonight, come with your thoughts and your input, and we'll have a time around tables for discussion and for prayer about what we sense God's leading us into. So uh, with that rather long introduction to set the context for you, I'd invite you to learn and listen and discern what the Spirit's saying to us together. So read this. So the letter begins, To the angel of the church of Jericho Ridge, write these words. The one who himself became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood has this on his heart to say to you. I love your love for people, for all people, people who are different from you in almost every way, in ethnicity, in history, in culture, in language, in politics, in age, in creed. Your doors are open to a vast diversity of my family, and it's wonderfully expressed in your midst. I love how this empathy stretches you into areas of justice and compassion on a global scale. This heart for every language, every tribe, and every tongue, and not just your own people or kingdom, brings me great pleasure. I love your generosity of spirit, Jericho, that you are willing to partner with many parts of my body to see it strengthened and built up, to watch you actively pursue peace and unity with my brothers and sisters who differ from you theologically and methodologically fills my heart with joy. But as you are engaged in mission, don't lose sight of the goal. In your pursuit of many noble ambitions, I have two charges to bring against you. First, I grow increasingly concerned that you are learning to love distinction instead of dying to self. There's a danger that lurks ever-present beneath the surface of apparent external success. And the danger is that you are growing to love being first and being known. I want to remind you that distinction comes with a downside for you and for me. When you love novelty more than sacrifice, when you pursue prominence and notoriety more than the way of the cross, I can't walk with you down that path. My hopes and my dreams and my plans for you are so much grander and wider than you will ever know if you insist on loving distinction. But know that if you do, you will grow small trying to be great. Secondly, I grow increasingly concerned that you are trusting technique instead of the movement and the whispers of my spirit. I have been clear with you that to whom much has been given, much is required. And to you and to your tribe, I have given much. You are well resourced with leaders and with facilities. You have fantastic partnerships and institutions and education, top drawer technology, sensational strategic plans, and much, much more. But sometimes it saddens me to see you rush to these things 
Instead of resting in and listening carefully and patiently to me. You love Twitter and texting and trends and innovation, but I rarely show up on Facebook or in the middle of a public gathering that's been so pre-programmed or overproduced that I couldn't speak to people even if I wanted to. There's nothing wrong with best practices or innovations or any of these things except when you begin to trust technique so completely that my gentle whisper can't penetrate or even upend your carefully laid out plans. So Jericho, here's what I'm asking of you. Before you ever utter the word strategic initiative again, I'd like a private and personal and searching meeting with you. Before the launch of other church plants or before another missionary is sent or dollar is given, I need you to forsake a reliance on technique and your love of distinction. And I invite you to find my heart. Know that when you do, you will grow deep and wide as you learn to be still and to know that I am God. Because I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. Let that spirit of anticipation and hope drive you forward. It's been my heart and my prayer for us as a group over the last couple of months. And it will continue to be my heart and my prayer as I spend three months of time asking God, God, what is it that you have for us as a community? Spend time reading and thinking about that. I'll spend time in a course in Vancouver. Spend time this coming week in a church in California being mentored in asking some of those questions in a church that's a little further down the road than we are in some of these things. And so that's going to be the way that I spend my sabbatical is trying to learn more effectively and appropriately how to listen to what it is that God has on his heart for us in these areas. And so I'd encourage you to be about that process as well as we go into this experience together. And part of what I'm discerning and calling myself and us to as a group is to uh, press in even closer into that area of our personal adventure with God. And for some of you, your connection with God might have grown stale over time. It's become technique-based as opposed to something that's deeply passionate and vitalized like it used to be. And for some of you, your, your soul or your experience of a connection with God might be dry and you might even not be able to put your finger on why. And so I've used up a good chunk of my teaching time this morning sharing uh, that letter. But if I could add an addendum or a postscript to it, it would be encouragement lifted from the words uh, of that old hymn, Take Time to Be Holy. And I'll quote the first verse here uh, for us. That old hymn says, Take time to be holy. It's an investment in intentionality. Speak oft with the Lord. Abide in God always and feed on his word. Make friends with God's children. Help those who are weak, forgetting in nothing his blessing to seek. And the challenge for me as I think about it and as I read something like that is that when I think of the word 
holiness, there's all kinds of stuff that comes to my mind. And I don't know what comes to your mind. What, when I say the word holiness, what's some things that come to your mind? Just shout them out. Can be negative or positive. Separate. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Available. What else? Perfection. Yeah, what else? Pure. What else? Set apart. Yeah. A lot of these, the terms that are kind of connected with the word holiness in our thinking have either uh, some biblical roots to them or have some historical roots to them. And not all of them are positive. When we think about perfect as an example, then uh, we say, well, you know, 1 Peter chapter 1 says, be holy as I am holy, says the Lord. And we think, all right, well, if that's the standard, I don't even have a shot, so why should I even get started in a project like that? Because that just seems like it's, you know, I know I'm never going to get there, so why should I even bother? And so there can be some discouraging elements to it. Um, to me, when I think about holiness, part of it is a tradition that I grew up in. There's a kind of dourness associated with holiness. Nobody that I knew that used or was ascribed that term, no, you would never call them very much fun. That would also never get linked with that person's life in any way. Um, it was kind of more of a rule following or legalistic kind of an orientation towards God and others that usually meant a kind of separateness or distancing from the stuff of daily life. And so when we talk about her in our series, we're in the middle of a series now on ambition, the good, the bad, and the holy. And we're seeking to answer the question, what does God want from you and me? Because there's times very clearly in the New Testament where it's kind of like the, the writer pauses and says, oh, don't forget about this. You need to be about these things. Be ambitious about this, that, and the other thing. And so we've tried to isolate where in the New Testament does that come up that we could isolate and talk a little bit more clearly about that. And if you were to read through the New Testament looking for the word ambition, uh, you would one of the most surprising places that you'd find it is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which is a discussion of what holiness looks like. And at the midpoint of the chapter, in verse 12, Paul, the author, says, make it your ambition to be about these things. In other words, get ambitious about being holy. Get ambitious about holiness. And we're going to see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 this morning three primary misconceptions that people have about what holiness is and three clear things that we would want to be building into our lives to fulfill that call to ambitious holiness. And I'm going to be reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 uh, verses 1 to 12 in the New Living Translation. Most of the text will be up here on the side screens. And so let's read uh, together, starting in verse 1. It says, finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you, we encourage you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, to live in a way that pleases God, as we have taught you. You live this way already, and we encourage you to do so even more. For you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will for you is to be holy. So stay away from all sexual sin 
Then each of you will control your own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion like the pagans do who do not know God and his ways. Never, ever harm or cheat a Christian brother in this manner by violating his wife. For the Lord will avenge all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. God has called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. Therefore, Anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching, but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. But we don't need to write to you about uh, the importance of loving each other, for God himself has taught you to love one another. Indeed, you already show your love for all of the believers throughout Macedonia. Even so, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you to love them even more. And then here in verse 11, verse 12, the NIV is a little bit clearer in the way where it says it. It says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life will win the respect of outsiders so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So we see highlighted in this passage a number of very concrete and specific realities about holiness. And the question that the author is trying to answer is, what does holiness look like? And frankly, it's a little bit surprising because it doesn't actually match the description that we usually ascribe to it. So we're going to look at three clusters that come to us in the text. Of uh, first, It'll start with what holiness is not and then contrast it with what holiness is or what it should be and what it would therefore call out for us to be ambitious about. And so the first cluster comes to us in the first couple of verses that holiness really is not a, an element of prudishness or separateness to it in this context. Look at what verse 1 and verse 2 talks about. It's talking about daily living. It's talking about just the way in which you go about doing all the realities of your daily life. And so when the author says you want to be holy, he's not saying well, you need to get away from everything that you normally do and that holiness is a separate component of your life. He's saying, no, no, holiness is simply, by definition, choosing to live my daily life in a way that pleases God. And so when I have a choice to make, then making a choice that, to do something that would please God in that particular setting is a pursuit of holy living. And this is where many Christians have had good intentions, but not always great practices in the past. I think, for example, of uh, even our Mennonite brethren forebears in this. Have any of you, did any of you have to read uh, in high school, in English lit class, Peace Shall Destroy Many. Have you read any of Rudy Weeb's novels? All right. Apparently that was more of an Ontario high school thing, maybe, Debbie, you and I might have read that. But um, so, anyways, but if you know a little bit about some of the history of the Mennonite Brethren, a family that we're a part of, uh, a lot of their read on the uh, discussion on holiness in the New Testament, uh, isolated texts like come out from among them and be separate. Uh, says the Lord. And so the key feature of holiness in the past historically has often been a definition of separateness uh, from the world, spiritually, morally, and often very practically and geographically as well. And so many Mennonites 
in the early part of the 20th century uh, really even organized themselves around wanting to be distinct and separate from the world with the view and the good intention of wanting to pursue holiness. And this sense of distance had a noble thing as its objective, uh, that of keeping a person pure and holy. And in fact, some groups still practice this. Think about uh, like the old order uh, Mennonite or Amish in, in Lancaster County in Pennsylvania or in parts of southwestern Ontario. But what happened was this separation from the world had some unintended consequences to it. It made holiness about where I lived my life and not always about how I lived my life. And a sense of separateness grew up to define entire communities and entire faith communities by what they did not do as opposed to by what they did do. For example... The tribe that I grew up in uh, was not Mennonite. It was a non-denominational church uh, that then became part of a, of a Baptist uh, group. And they were very, very proud of the phrase, uh, we don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with women who do. That, to them, was holiness. If you didn't smoke, if you didn't drink, and you didn't chew tobacco, you were a holy person by definition. It had nothing to do with the things that you may incorporate into your life. It was all about what you chose not to incorporate into your life. It was the discipline of not dancing or not going to movies or not watching certain shows on TV. But the intriguing thing to me is that that's not where the scripture begins its discussion about holiness. It begins the discussion about holiness in a proactive manner of saying, hey, the way in which you live your life you want to make choices that please God. First Thessalonians begins a discussion on holiness with an encouragement towards certain things as opposed to prescriptions against certain things. And so it encourages us to think about holiness as something that we weave into the fabric of our everyday life and choices, not about just being separate in some way from the world. And so holiness is about my day-to-day -day life and interactions under the authority of Jesus as opposed to simply following a set of rules and separating myself from the world. Because you can be separate and still not be holy. You can, have all of, you can do none of those things that were on those lists and still not actively choose to live your life in a way that's pleasing to God. Holiness is a discipline of engagement as opposed to a discipline always of withdrawal. And there's a lot more that could be said about that, and so you'll have some fun discussions about that in your small groups uh, this week. But the second cluster that defines ambitious holiness is related to this. And it takes us a step further in the middle section of this text. And we see it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 8, where he says, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching. And so we learn from this that holiness is, again, not about simply carefully following a list of human or man-made rules or prescriptions. It's not that there are no rules. It's just that their origin and their source needs to be assessed very carefully. If the Bible outright forbids it, which it clearly does here in the area of sexual immorality and sexual sin, then it's off-limits. But so often what happens in religious history is that we've taken something that the Bible 
is not clearly against or prescriptive against. It doesn't draw a clear line about. Um, let's use an example that maybe some are familiar with in your, in your tradition or growing up. Let's use the example of alcohol. The Bible clearly says, don't be drunk. When you lose control of your faculties, bad things happen. And so some groups have thought, okay, that's good advice. What we should be careful then is getting anywhere close to that, so we should make some prescriptions against any alcohol whatsoever. Now, there are times and choices in individuals who need to make and be very, very wise and judicious in their consumption and use of alcohol. There's family histories in play. There's all kinds of things. And there's very wise counsel that the Scripture gives us upon being aware of those around you in all those situations. But the Bible never says, don't drink. The Bible clearly says, don't get drunk. So don't touch alcohol is a personal choice or a human rule. And as such, it doesn't have to do with holiness. But there are groups that have made that a defining feature of holiness and have then characterized their life and their orientation by that. And so it's subtle, but sometimes we need to be aware of the fact of our, where is the origin and the source and the intent of the rules that I'm looking at? Is it something that God is clearly and explicitly taught in scriptures? Or is it something that we've taken the scriptures and made then some prescriptions, which may be helpful for us, but don't have the same weight as biblical authority? But sometimes we get those two things confused, and so holiness, therefore, becomes a list of things that, we need, that you need not to do. And when you look at that list very carefully, you think, oh, I don't know, are all of those biblically defensible? Again, this does not mean, don't hear what I'm not saying, this does not mean that you go out and do anything that you want to do and that it doesn't explicitly prohibit in the Scriptures. It's a difference between a centered set living where you try and look to somebody to give you all of the rules that you can't do, set a whole set of boundaries, and then say, well, I can, I can do anything that's not explicitly prohibited, or centered set where you say, I want to become as much like Jesus as I can. That's my call to holy living and discipleship. I'm going to organize my life in such a way that I'm on that path of discipleship with him, and you're moving in that direction, however near or however far from you in your orientation towards your life. But holiness does have limits and boundaries. And an example of that is clearly given to us in this passage. And says holiness here is very explicitly defined or categorized as saying holiness does mean keeping myself pure and controlled in the area of sexuality and sexual sin. If God's will is for me to be holy, which it says, then I will continually invite the help and the power of the Holy Spirit to work on my life to keep me in line with the things that he wants me to be about and to keep me pure in the area of sexual sin. So many of you can identify with being trapped in a cycle of inappropriate sexual lust and expressions of sexuality. And again, this can be a whole message in and of itself. But the thing that I want you to hear this morning is that it's God's will for you to be holy and that indeed through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, you can be free. There's whole groups of guys around here at Jericho that meet regularly to hold each other accountable in this area. And if you want in on that process, then uh, I want you to talk to me today before you leave. Because though it may not feel like it, by tying these two things together and saying, it's God's will for you to be holy, keep yourself pure in this area, one of the things that the text is trying to help us understand is that there is hope for you to experience victory and holiness in this area of your life. So holiness is about 
we saw, what I do, not just what I don't do. And it's also about sometimes the things that I don't do and make choices around. In this particular text, it's talking very clearly about the area of purity. And then there's one more cluster in our triad from this passage, and it's a cautionary note on how we go about pursuing holiness in our lives. And if you're a reader of the New Testament, perhaps you're familiar with a group of people from the first century called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were a group of people that were renowned for their piety and the way in which they could organize their lives to give the impression of holiness to those around them. And yet Jesus reserved some of his sharpest critique in his time on earth for them. And part of his critique of the Pharisees is because they may have kept all of the rules, but they got tripped up in this last area of holiness, which is where we're admonished to be particularly ambitious. And in the question of holiness, the, the question that we've got to wrestle with as individuals is, is holiness an individual reality? Is it a, is it a personal matter that is just between me and God? So if I, I can get that all stuff going on inside my life. Or is there also a public dimension in any way to holiness? The Pharisees would have weighted the equation on the public side and quite often at the neglect of personal holiness. But I think in some ways, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 and 12 reminds us that the answer to that question, is, public, is holiness a public or a private matter? In some ways, it's kind of both. So our third cluster about what does holiness look like is holiness is not showy or highly public. That was what Jesus critiqued the Pharisees for. But at the same time, holiness is quietly winsome so that my life is public enough to win the respect of others. Particularly here in 1 Thessalonians 4.12, it says, particularly of those who are not Christians. And this is where I think the NIV is a little bit clearer than the New Living, where it says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. But it can't be so quiet that nobody notices. If holiness strictly has to do with you getting right with Jesus in that vertical orientation, why in the world does it say, minding your own business, working with your hands, just as we instructed you before, then people who are not Christians will respect the way in which you live. They may not always understand it, but they will respect the way in which you live. And so holiness might start internally and might have to do with what's going on in my heart and in my head. But it can't be just stay there. It has to evidence itself in the way that I carry myself in the world. It's not showy in a public way of calling attention and drawing to itself, hey, look at me, look how holy I am, which is essentially what the Pharisees were attempting to do and Jesus critiques them for. But it does have a quiet and winsome quality about it that leads people who do not know Jesus and do not respect God to have a respect for your character and your work. And so let me give you a practical example of this. If you're a business person, you don't have to name your company Jesus Saves Joinery, all right? I'm, I'm sorry if that's anybody's company name. I apologize. I should have Googled that before I said that. 
but you just make good cabinets and conduct yourselves in a way in your character and in your work and in your orientation with others so that those who are not Christians think that person walks the walk. You don't have to put it on your business card to say, I'm a person of faith. This is the name of my company. Um, you just carry and conduct yourselves in a way that it becomes evident to other people that you live by a set of code and morality and you live with a high, an ethic that Jesus would call you to. And they think to themselves, well, I guess that person walks the walk. They're not just a Christian on Sundays. The way they actually have a work ethic and a product, then a way of carrying themselves money through Saturday that's influenced and permeated by their faith in God. If you're an employer, you don't have to sign every email to your employees, yours in Christ, so-and-so. But you do have to live your life in a way that you recognize that others are watching you and that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. And so you don't have to sign it, put it in your email moniker to prove it to other people. Holiness needs to be attractive in and of itself. There's a simplicity, there's a purity of life and speech that flows out of the character and the life of a person who has made time to be holy that's inescapable in its notice by others. And so we're going to move into a time of communion and worship in song as our response. And as we do, I want to ask you a question. And the question is this. Is there any area of your life in which you might ask the Holy Spirit to do a bit of a holiness makeover? Is there any part of your life in which you think, you know what, I, I don't think it, I could be described by some of those things that holiness is. I think I might have had a bit of a mixed up idea as to what holiness might be mean. Maybe for you it's in the category of input. Maybe there are some things that you're putting into your life that you would not describe and define as holy. And so maybe you need to ask yourself the question and limit some of those choices intentionally. Maybe it's in the category of output. Maybe the, some of the things that have been coming out of your mouth, some of the ways in which you have been behaving, some of the orientation that you've had towards your kids or towards other individuals. Maybe they need a holiness makeover. Maybe there's things in your life that are taking controlling influence in you. Whatever it is. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's debt and finances. Maybe it's sexual addiction. Maybe religiosity and putting on a good front for other people has taken root and taken hold in your life to the place where holiness has become all about the externals and not about what's going on in here. And so as you move into a time of communion and response, the team's going to lead us in some songs. And I want you to spend time. The scripture explicitly says that when we come to a communion table, that's the time when we need to examine ourselves and ask if indeed we are living in a way of congruence with what Jesus calls us to. The scripture says, let a person examine themselves. And so as we move into a time of song, the songs will we'll talk about an attitude and a heart of repentance and asking God to search us, asking God to, to cultivate a deeper level of holiness in our lives because we can't do it on our own. It's not something that we manufacture by trying to be a better person. It's something that the Spirit of God does work in your life and my heart to do. And so if there's areas in which you need to ask God to do that work in your life, 
do that. If there's things you need to get right with God in that vertical relationship, take time before you go to the communion table. If there's things that you need to get right in a relationship with another person, God brings it to your mind. You think, oh, it's just too small. That's not a big deal. That person would have forgotten about that. They won't remember that comment that I made. That's God's spirit bringing that back to your mind and to your heart. Take time to go to them. Go make the phone call. Go to them if they're here and say, you know what, God's been bringing something to my mind, an attitude or thought, a comment. I need to ask for your forgiveness before I move into a place of meeting God. It doesn't mean that you have to be perfect before you come to the communion table. If that was the bar, none of us would come. We come only because of what Jesus did. And therefore, the cup represents his body, his blood that was shed for you and me, that we might be holy as God is holy. And the bread represents his body that was broken for you. Where on that moment in the cross, he took all of your sin and your shame on himself, absorbed it so that you could live in holiness and forgiveness and life. And if you're in a place this morning where you've never acknowledged God and never thanked him for that, never taken the opportunity to invite Jesus to be your forgiver and your leader, I want you to do that today before you go. I'll be at the back. Our prayer team will be at the side, just behind the curtain there. Spend time talking and conversing with someone, asking questions of things that you've heard. And then when you feel that you're ready as an individual, as a couple, you can move to the tables here at Jericho. You just move there. You take the cup. You take the bread. You can move back to your, your seat and partake of it there just whenever you feel ready. So don't feel rushed in any way. Don't feel like you have to go and participate if you choose not to do that. Just spend this time asking God to search you and to see if there's anything going on in your life, in your heart, where he might want to call you up and call you out to a different level of holiness in life today. Let's pray. God, we say thank you for the cross. Thank you for the work of Jesus, that it is effective yet today in our lives. It's effective in reminding us of those things that you have declared to be true over our lives, that you will be the one who has begun a good work in us and will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so you're the one who invites us into that process of our hearts and our lives being transformed. And so when we pray and say something like holiness, God, I want to be holy, it's not that we're working harder to do that. It's just we're reminding ourselves yet again of the fact that you, by shedding your blood on the cross, by giving yourself, emptying yourself for us, you have made us holy. And so we receive that, Jesus, with gratitude and with thanksgiving in our hearts today. And we ask that you would continue that process in our lives, God, whatever you need to do. And so here in this place this morning, for each and every one of us, God, would you do that work and continue to put your finger on elements of our lives that we need to change and ask you to change by the power of your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Scott and the team will lead us, and whenever you feel ready to go, please make your way to one of the tables at the side.